The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now, I remember I had a, a friend in high school who was a world-class athlete, just freakishly athletic, freakishly gifted, and was like renowned for their athleticism. I remember mentioning in passing one time to this particular friend, uh, I said something about uh, his God-given abilities. And the, the reason that I remember this particular situation is the fact that when I said that these abilities were God-given, and, and honestly, I don't, I don't know how much credence I actually put into that phrase so much as it was just kind of an expression. The fact that I said that these abilities were God-given, my friend stopped me and said, actually, actually, these things, these skills, this athletic prowess that I have is something that I worked for. It's something that I earned, that I gained through diligence, through hard work, through discipline, through years of devotion to this craft. So you call it God-given, and I'll call it work. I'll call it my effort. And the reason I remember this uh, uh, particular scenario is because of how strongly my friend rebuked me by just saying that, that this person had God-given athletic abilities. And it introduced to me, really, for the very first time, a distinction. Uh, what seems like a really fine distinction, but a really important distinction. The distinction between something you've earned, something that you have gained by your effort, effort, and something that you have been given. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the difference between something you've gained and something you've been gifted? How would you answer it? How would you distinguish between those two? How would you distinguish between things that you have earned by, the, by your, the, your own, like the strength of your own back and your own intelligence and, and all of that? You know? how, how would you distinguish that between something that you have been given? We might say that something you've gained, something that I have gained, is something that I have a right to. It's something that is mine, like a wage. Like I've done X, and so I deserve Y. And so I claim Y as my own. A contract stipulates you work one hour, you receive X amount of dollars, and so you, you work that hour and you gain those amounts of dollars. When I worked at Publix, that was my first job. I was a, a sophomore in high school. I was a, a bag boy at Publix. It was the best Publix I'd ever seen or ever will have seen. I guarantee you that. I, I think it was seven fifty an hour, and then I made extra uh, tips on top of that, though we weren't supposed to take them. I totally did, because uh, there was a Anthony's Pizza right next to the Publix where I worked, and on my lunch breaks, I'd get meatball subs, and that's just the way that it, that's the way that it worked. Now, <laughs> something you've gained is something that you say you have a right to. It is yours. What about something that you've been given? How is that different than something that you've earned? Well, a gift is completely and utterly different. You don't have a right to it. That's kind of the point. The point is you did not earn this thing. It is a gift. The point is that somebody was kind enough and generous enough to give it to you. And so how do you respond to a gift? Do you, do you reach out and grab it? Do you gain the gift? Or do you receive it with humility and gladness for the generosity of the giver? Do you receive the thing that you've been gifted? Now we have this problem, this tendency, let's say, to get our wires crossed on this. Uh, it sort of explains the situation with that friend that I mentioned. It's like, it's the reason we have to detox our kids after every Christmas and birthday. It's like they're given presents, lots of free time, there's no school, they get to drink Dr. Pepper, they get to stay up late. And it's not just kids, if we're honest, that needs this kind of detox. They start to think, this is in response to who I am. I have, I have earned 
and, and I merit these gifts and these presents and these blessings that you are showering on me. It's, it's, an, inevitable, it's an inevitable fact of, of who I am as a human that you feel compelled to just lavish me with the presence in the way that you do. I'm wonderful and I deserve all of these things that you're giving me. It's like an origin story of a, of a supervillain. It's like they develop this God complex and they're like, with the powers that I have, I could rule the world. Now, Ecclesiastes speaks to that tendency. That tendency we have to get gift and gain crossed. As I mentioned, we're studying Ecclesiastes as a church. And a few Sundays ago, we saw that the great preacher offers his credentials as one who is going on this quest to tell us whether or not there's anything to be gained in life. Is there anything to be gained? Is there any profit? Is there any uh, being in the black when it's all said and done? His conclusion, the great, white, the great wise king tells us, the conclusion of his quest as to whether or not there's any gain in life, spoiler alert, is that everything is vapor. The word vapor there is hevel. It can be translated meaninglessness or vanity or vapor. And probably the best interpretation of that Hebrew word is vapor because of the image that it sort of conjures up. Think about like a, a blown out candle, the wisp in the air. It's like, is, the, is there any grabbing onto that? And the author says that's what life is like. And, and there is no gain in life because everything is vapor. It's the image of that which is fleeting and insubstantial. We can't grab it. We can't control it. We can't master it. Life is short, fleeting, ephemeral. We don't understand it, and it eludes our mastery. We said that this isn't just for the unbeliever. This is for all of us. It's not just for the, the secularist. Life is vapor for all of us, and there's just no escaping this fact. The preacher in chapter 1, verse 3 asks, What gain is there in life? What real power or advantage do we have over our lives and destinies? And the answer is, there is none. Because all is vapor, and there's no, there's no gain or leverage or advantage which, with that which is vaporous. The preacher volunteers his tribute. He says, I'm going to go on this quest. I'm going to go on this journey, and I'm going to explore every nook and cranny in life, and I'm going to report back to you my findings. And his findings, he tells us in chapter 2, it's all vapor. I've gone to the heights, and I've gone to the depths, and I've searched out pleasure, and I've searched out wisdom, and I've searched out work, and there's nothing to gain anywhere. All of it is vapor. Let's look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We might say that his first stop in this quest is wine. The preacher says, I said in my heart, said in my heart, rather, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was a vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do during the few days of their life. Now, this quest, his first stop, we'll say, is wine. He stops at pleasure. He says, with wisdom guiding me, I'm going to explore folly, and I'm going to explore wine, and I'm going to explore pleasure, and I'm going to see if there's any permanence there, if there's any substance there, if, if, there's, any, uh, if there's anything to be gained there. I'm going to search it out. Uh, last week, we said that the, the preacher identifies himself as this great wise king who has no limits on the stuff that he can run after. It's like he's got all the money and all of the opportunity and all of the riches to pursue whatever he wants to pursue. And he says, I'm going to pursue it and let you know what I find. So he says, stop one is going to be wine and pleasure. I'm going to, guided by wisdom on this quest, I'm going to go explore to see what sort of life can be found there. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. 
I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had gone before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. He says, I'm going to build myself an empire. I'm going to build myself an empire. I'm going to build a, a productive plantation. And I'm going to bring in workers, and I'm going to use my wealth to expand the reach of my empire. And I'm not going to deny myself any kind of pleasure. And I'm going to let you know what I find there. Verse 9. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. I mentioned that Ecclesiastes is a book that sort of refuses to behave. Some of the things that he devotes himself to here are sin. He is sinning. Concubines are sinful, right? It's like he, he is giving himself over to things that are sinful. And yet he tells us that this is all part of the quest to find out what gain there is in life. It's like he, he's going to go test those waters so that he can shepherd us and report back to us his findings so that we don't have to go there. Uh, he says uh, in verse 10, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And then this is interesting. He says, For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. It's like he says, all of this is vanity is where he's going with this. I'm sure you picked up on that. But it's like he says here, just by the way, the pleasure was pleasurable. I received pleasure, but that was the, 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 the momentary uh, sort of uh, synapses kind of firing and the, the dopamine hits. Like that was the reward for the pleasure that I sought out. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Verse 11, and then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he goes on this self-aware quest where he's going to pursue the, the very limits of pleasure, and what does he conclude? All is vanity. A familiar note. It's vapor. It's striving after the wind. We said it's like trying to hogtie the breeze. It's not happening. There is no gain. Pleasure was the reward of his pleasure. But at the end of the day, there was no, there was no gain now, let's say to, to you and I, let's say kind of taking a, taking a breath for a moment. Let's say that you and I pursue some sort of pleasurable quest. Like, let's say you do turn that sprinter van into a tr tiny, traveling, tiny home. You do that. You saw it on TikTok. You, me, me and whoever, we're going we're gonna to turn this sprinter van into a little traveling home. We're going to go see Colorado. We're going to go look for Big, Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest. We're going to go see all of Utah, Idaho, Canada, you know, whatever. Let's say you do that, and then some. And let's say you amass millions of followers on TikTok, and it's like you got sponsors coming out your ears, you got money, like you don't know what to do with. Then what? Then what? What will you do with that renovated tiny home? What will you do, will you do with those pictures of mountains on your camera roll at the end of the day? What are you going to do with that? Is there some kind of life or permanence to be found there? Some kind of gain? The preacher would say, no, all of that is vapor. It's striving after wind. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. Stop number two, verses 12 through 17, wisdom. 
So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? It's kind of funny. (laughs) It's like, there is gain. Like, it's better to be wise than a fool, but at the end of the day, both the wise and the fool happen. It's like, why even be wise to begin with, he says. I said in my heart, this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after wind. He says, look, wisdom is better than folly. You you, you want to read Proverbs and inject it into my veins, right? Like be wise, be wise. But he says at the end of the day, the same thing happens to both of them. Both the wise and the fool are going to die. Both the wise and the fool are going to be misrepresented by those people that come after them. And both the wise and the fool will eventually be forgotten. For all is vanity. There is no gain. There is no permanence, not even in wisdom. And so the result is, is it says it drives him to despair. He says, I hated life. There's no escaping this. There's no escaping the, the, the vaporousness of our existence. He's hemmed in under the sun. He's frustrated. It's all grievous. And he laments the state of things. Now, let's say you get that classical education. Let's say you get into that prestigious school or that dream grad school that you have been uh, just romanticizing in your head. Let's say you absolutely crush it. You're on the dean's list and you're celebrated by the most elite of the educated world. You become a published author author even. The masses attend to your every word and your uh, sold-out TED Talk, which leads to book deal after book deal and podcast appearance after podcast appearance. You are renowned for your wisdom. Then what? You'll die. You'll be forgotten, just like us average Joes, and you'll be misrepresented by those that come after you. Is there life there? Is there permanence? Is there some kind of gain? No, it's all vapor. It's all striving after wind. Verses 18 through 23, his third stop, work. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Don't you love the imagery of toiling under the sun? You just, you kind of feel the heat just bearing down. You you sort of see what he's saying. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. It's like you, you, you devote your life to something and some knucklehead is going to take it and run that thing into the ground. Potentially is what he says. He, yet he will be the master for, uh, of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. I hated my work. The reason is, he says, I can't take it with me. I have to leave it to subsequent generations, and who knows what in the world they're going to do with it. Yet, wise or fool, he or she will be the master over my baby, my life's work. So so honestly, as I was thinking about this, it's like, uh, one day, I am no longer going to be filling this pulpit. It could be next, I could get, get hit by a car on Tuesday. It could be 50 years from now, whatever the Lord wills. And I have absolutely no control over what the next guy who stands here and says does. No control over that. 
And it's like, my family has devoted our, I'm losing hair from the process of like planting a church and pastoring. And it's like, I have no control over what subsequent generations will do to the church of Greer Station in the future. And it's like, that's vanity, he says. That's just the way things are because everything under the sun is hevel. Verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. All right, so let's daydream again for a second. Let's say you do the homesteading thing. You build your own house that's completely off the radar, completely off the grid. You build your own house from trees you cut down. You're solar-powered. You live off of your own spinach and your own chickens. You build an outright kingdom in the woods. You build stability and resiliency and wealth, and you set your kids up in the best way you can possibly imagine. Then what? What if they're fools who, as soon as they inherit it, sell it? Then what? What control do you have over that kingdom in the woods that you've built? None. Because all is vapor and all is vanity and all is striving after the wind. Verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? This is his answer. This is, this is what he has. For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. What do we have? We have sorrow, vexation, and sleepless nights riddled with anxiety. This is life under the sun. So good gracious. What is our response to this? How could we possibly respond to what the author has just laid out for us, what the preacher has said. What's our response to the inevitable vaporousness of everything? There's no solution. We, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There's no fixing this. There's no five easy steps to make life feel less vaporous. So how do we respond? Do we give in to despair? Do we give in to vexation? No. What the author will tell us next is that we're to set a table. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Every time uh, my family sits down for dinner, we try to make it a practice to just take 15 seconds and stop the chaos and just go to the Lord. We, we, we say, let's do our prayer hands. You do the prayer hands so that the hands will stay off of the sister's spoon or whatever. We do prayer hands. We close our eyes. We put down our drinks. We put down our forks. Whatever we're fooling with, we stop and we give our full attention to this moment. And we say, God, you gave us this food and you didn't have to. So every time we pray, and I know that's what you guys do every time you eat as well. The reason that we do this is because God gave us the food and he didn't have to. And so we want to pause just for a second and acknowledge that as a way of receiving it with, with humility and with glad hearts, receiving what the Lord has provided. Uh, and more often than not, it's delicious. And so we're thankful, <laughs> we're thankful that the Lord provided it. In fact, I have this theory. I was actually thinking about this earlier. The reason, like, as, a, as I've kind of gotten older, um, 
I've kind of made fun of myself, and Emily has made fun of me a little bit. Uh, my willingness to eat more stuff, it's like it just expands. I don't know if it's a dad thing, but like once you become a dad and kind of the further you get into that process, you're just more willing to eat things that you wouldn't otherwise have eaten. And I think the reason is is because you realize it's like a miracle that we have these things to begin with anyways, and so you're just like, I'm just going to be grateful for what we have, and I'm going to eat it. There's, there, there's a connection there between uh, uh, gratitude and a diverse palate, I think. Now, the way that the preacher calls us to respond to this impossible situation, to this life of heaven and striving after the wind, the, the preacher commands us, listen to this, to receive and enjoy the simple pleasures of life. One commentator said that this is the heart of Ecclesiastes. Hear this, write this down. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. We don't gain. We don't master. We don't grab hold of the vapor. Instead, we receive. Endemic to the human condition is this God complex where the name of the game is striving and gaining and profiting. We think we can master our lives, that we can have power over our bodies and our destinies. We think we have control and assurance and permanence over our lifespan and over our health and over our legacies. We think that we can manage and maximize our time. We think we can set ourselves up for tomorrow and set our children up for their tomorrow. We think that we can build empires and build our name to outlast us, but in reality, all of it is vapor. The preacher tells us that all of these efforts are striving after the wind, and it's like children building sandcastles that will inevitably be swept away by the tide. In the New Testament, the Apostle James asks this question and makes a point. He says, why do we talk about tomorrow with such confidence? Not that planning is bad. It's just that you and I don't have any ability to do anything about tomorrow. So instead, we receive today. Life is vapor. You are vapor. Each of us, every one of us in the room, we're a bunch of wispy dependents. Here for a moment and then gone. We aren't God. And so the only way that we can respond to that, it's not to, to give into the hatred of life and despair that the preacher flirts with here. No, we respond by opening our hands to receive from God, by eating the food he's given us, by drinking the drink he's given us, and enjoying the work he's given us for the few short years we have to do so. Another author said, the way we respond to the vapor is that we're to set a table in the mist. Isn't that such a great picture, to set a table in the mist? In spite of the vaporousness of everything, we set a table right in the middle of the vapor and enjoy the food, the drink, and the work that God has given us for the few short moments he's given it to us. But maybe you hear that and you think, isn't that kind of what the author said, though? Like, isn't everything vapor? Isn't food, drink, and work vapor? Isn't that the point? And the answer is yes. And that's exactly his reasoning for why we should receive them for the few short moments we have to receive them. We're to receive them from God while we have them. And we receive them precisely because they can't be grasped, they can't be retained, they can't be mastered, they can't be manufactured. We receive them as a gift. Now, this is not to be confused with a kind of nihilistic hedonism. Like, this is all that there is, so eat, drink, and be merry. There's a Dave Matthews song called Tripping Billies where the chorus is like, just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, tomorrow we die, eat, drink. That's not what the author is saying here. 
uh, to the author, uh, the, the preacher, that would be seeking some kind of permanence in those things, some kind of substance there. Instead, we receive them for the few brief seconds that we're allowed to have them. Uh, to the young parents in the room, what happens every time you go to the grocery store with your kids? 100% of the time. An old-timer walks up to you and says, and enjoy, I didn't hear it, what you said, but I'm sure it was funny. <laughs> what happens every single time? An old-timer comes up and says, enjoy them while they're little. 100% of the time. I don't know if I've ever been in a grocery store without one of my kids where somebody says, enjoy them while they're little. And the reason is, is because it's a vapor. It's but a moment. Your toddler will be a teenager before you can blink. There is going to be a final time you pick up your child and you don't even realize when that is. There's just no altering the fact that life is vapor. And that principle is true of every aspect of life. There's going to be a last time you see your spouse. There's going to be a last time you enjoy barbecue. Gotta think of that for a second, bruh. Bruh. There's going to be a last time you clock in. There is a last time for everything because all is vapor. So what's our response to this? Do we try and grab it? Do we try and transcend the vapor? Do we try and overcome it? No, we receive those things precisely because they're fleeting. We receive them as gift. Not gift from the universe in an abstract sense, but a gift from the God of the Bible, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the giver of all good things, who wove everything together, who created pigs so that we could turn them into barbecue. We receive that as gift from this God. We respond to the hevel by setting a table in the mist, finding delight in the vapor without losing sight of his vaporousness. To me, the snow that we experienced this past weekend is just a perfect picture of that, right? In the South, maybe you're not from the South, and so snow is not your thing. But for me, having grown up in this area, whenever it snows, I just sit and receive it. Because it's like, you know what? This doesn't happen all that often, and in 24 hours, this stuff is going to be gone. So we just pause, and we're present, and we look at it, and we receive it. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, That's, that should be uh, the, the sort of embrace and the kind of reception we give all good gifts from the Heavenly Father because all of it is vapor. Because it's good and it comes like once or twice a year, we enjoy it while we have it. And so we embrace the small vaporous gift as the small vaporous gift that it is. Verse 26, let's keep reading. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to, to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. To the righteous, to those who fear God and give up the pursuit of gain, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, or the one who continues striving after the wind and striving after the wind and striving after the wind, we're given the busy work of gathering and collecting and striving some more. We're given over to the vapor that we are chasing after. And the preacher here calls us. Instead, to an embrace of the tiny joys in their tininess, in their impermanence, as gifts from God. Not to fix the vapor, not to reduce the feelings of vaporousness, but as a response to it. And this is all of life, isn't it? Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received from God? We were made by God, we were made for God, and we were made to know and enjoy God. And also... We were made to know and enjoy his world as a gift from him and to receive it in a manner that turns our hope, love, and joy back to him. The fallen reality of things doesn't change what the author says here. 
we're aware of the fact that we have a tendency to overdo it, to overinvest ourselves in food and drink and work as if permanence was to be found there, as if there was some kind of gain there. But those things cannot sustain the weight of our hearts and souls. The scriptures condemn that as idolatry, but make no mistake, God is the one who gives us food, drink, and work. They come from the hand of a kind and gracious God, and he invites us to receive them, precisely because they're vapor. Now, let me ask you, when was the last time you were just present and enjoyed the moment you just received? Receiving it for what it was. Not trying to master it or catalog it, but just received it as a gift from God. A good meal. When was the last time you just received a good meal? I'm not, I'm not saying ate it, but received it as if it was a gift from the Father. We need to be reminded that God doesn't have to give us these things. So we're given those things so we can enjoy it, sit back, and thank God for this moment, this moment that will evaporate quickly. When was the last time you had a belly laugh with friends? We just laughed until it hurt. There's no use for that. There's no way to get a handle on that. There's no way to bottle it up and profit it. Rather, we just receive it and we sit back and we thank God who conceived of a universe where that kind of thing is possible. I wonder how many of us live at a stupid kind of pace where it's like we're always hustling and always grinding and it makes this kind of thing seem totally impossible. When was the last time we went slowly and enjoyed where God had us? We think, I've got work to do. I've got a self to improve. I have this sickness, and it's, it's uh, the, the, Paul David Tripp calls it uh, always sermon prepping sickness. And for me, the way it manifests itself is always in the back of my head, I'm sermon prepping. Everything is sermon prepped. All times of all days, it's sermon prepped. When was the last time I turned it off? It was just slow and present to the moment. It had no utility. It wasn't fodder for sermon illustrations. Rather, when was the last time I was just there and received it? I found myself... Uh, over the snow days, I, I found myself like nostalgic for the lockdowns of 2020. Have you had this moment yet where you, like, you're nostalgic for when everything ground to a halt? Like FOMO died away because there was nothing to miss out on, and it just enables you to be completely there wherever the Lord puts you? I remember my family, we were, we were baking bread, and we were like gardening, and we were going on walks and playing board games and doing puzzles. We, we turned into like Anne of Green Gables <laughs> all of a sudden. It was wonderful. And found myself like recently nostalgic for that, for that pace, for that kind of attentiveness to the present, to these vaporous moments that the Lord graciously gives us. So do we live at a pace that actually makes that kind of thing a reality? I think that's what the preacher is telling us. It's actually striving after the wind. It's like improve yourself all you want and, 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 and sermon prep all you want. Do all these things all you want. But at the end of the day, you're going to be dead. At the end of the day, you're going to die and those things will be gone soon enough. Let's read good books for the joy of it. Not so that we can report that we have read them on Goodreads or Instagram or whatever. Not so that we can report that we've read them at a party, but read good books because they're good and receive it there in that moment for what it is. Is there space for us to watch giraffe videos with our little girls because giraffes are awesome and she is awesome? Is there space to just enjoy good music? Like, there's something indelible about music. It's like humans, we have to make it or we lose our minds. And think about what music is. It's like vibrating strings at a certain pitch that pair well with these other vibrating strings at this pitch, and it makes us weep. And I don't understand it, but it's amazing. And God gave it to us, and he did not have to. When was the last time we just received music? When was the last time we did good work? Not just for profit, not as a side hustle, but because it's good. Because our strength and dexterity come from God, and it's a pleasure to create, make, and do for his glory. 
The preacher asks, what gain in all of our work and pleasure and wisdom is there? And the answer is, there is no gain. It's all vapor. There's nothing lasting or permanent there. We can build empires, kingdoms, wealthy uh, legacies. We can build a name for ourselves. But at the end of the day, it's all vapor. And there's no use in raging against it. But our response should be setting a table in the midst and receiving the good things that the Lord has given us. This is something that we're going to see revisited over and over again throughout this book. And this is what I think is the surprising hopefulness to the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, this contrast between gaining and gift, where else do we see this in the Scriptures? The good news of the gospel is that all of your your efforts at winning God's favor and building a, a righteous name for yourself and doing good deeds to earn God's approval, the gospel is that all of that is striving after the win. The gospel is that life is gift, not gain. We cannot be righteous enough. Righteous enough. It's like trying to hogtie the breeze. It's striving after wind. What we can do is receive forgiveness, receive Christ, receive life as gift. That's the world-changing, counterintuitive message of the gospel. The Father sends his Son to die in our place so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could be welcomed back to life with God and so that we could enjoy those good gifts to the glory of this God. Because life is gift, not gain. The next few moments we're going to sing uh, the song, My Worth is Not in What I Own. The song is such a great song because it reminds us in an extremely materialistic society who is obsessed with images of ourselves and, and stuff that none of that matters, that our worth is not found there, that our worth is found in the fact that God made us, and that God has redeemed us in Christ. And we're going to celebrate that undeserving gift of his love for us as his people. There's questions for reflection at the bottom of your bulletin. I encourage you to look at those and uh, consider them this week and, and prayerfully see how the Holy Spirit is directing you to change in light of the Scripture. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us, and we thank you for offering your life as a gift. And we thank you that you saw us in our plight and in our, uh, our condition of darkness and hevel, the, the, crea- the situation we created for ourselves, and yet you moved to us in compassion. And, and for, the, for the joy that was set before you, Jesus, you endured the shame and the pain and the suffering of the cross. We pray that we would be a people... Uh, continually and forever shaped by the gospel, this gift of life that we have received that we did not deserve. And I pray also that you would unleash us to be a people uh, who enjoy the simple pleasures of life that come from your hand, who are not overcome by the despair that uh, tempts us, not overcome with the hatred for life that tempts us, that the preacher very honestly acknowledges in this passage, but instead that we respond by having open hands of gratitude and gladheartedness. We love you, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the gift that it is to be his people, to sing his songs and and bear his name. We pray this in his name.